You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. It's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we are running into an introduction to the commercial property market. And we thought we would tie that in with comparing that to the residential market because we've spoken for 154 episodes most consistently about the residential market. We've only had a couple of episodes in the last year or so with Anthony Morabito about some commercial aspects. Today, we've got one of the commercial real estate agents in Western Australia I respect most, and that is Luke Rendazzo from Burgess Rawson Inn. Luke, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Trent. Excited. To chat about those really basic understandings for all those people who have been listening on, thinking about subdivision development, passive investment in the residential space. But what about the commercial space? We have a lot of clients that are now talking to us about that option. It might not be for them, but also with a bit of information today, it might be something they start to look further down the line on. So, Luke, where do you think we should be starting? For me personally, it's getting a really basic understanding of just the differences between resi and commercial in terms of how the markets are going right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely a misunderstanding in the market that the commercial market is booming at the same level the residential one is. So we're certainly having a strong sign of growth at the moment through our market, but it isn't a matter of putting a property on the market and then putting it under offer over the weekend. The interest we have is generally from owner-occupiers and investors. Low rates are really driving people to try and get some form of return rather than what the bank is giving at the moment. And that's the point of commercial, isn't it? Most people who buy real estate in the residential space, they're thinking about long-term capital growth. It's less really about the rental yield because it's not that fantastic when you think about all the costs you've got involved, especially given the fact that in the residential market, you're still paying for your, your rates and or your property management and all those things. We'll talk about the differences there with commercial. With commercial, it really is a substitute to some other bank investment or share investment, whatnot, when it comes to a yield, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, even as an investor, there's a number of classes in terms of investors that are chasing capital growth. And those ones will target green title properties that have land rich and, and chase some form of growth in the land itself. And then there's also investors that just uh, chase a pure yield play. So they're just going for a tenanted investment and they buy it on a percentage on what that return is. So it could even be a strata and it's just all about income, passive income, set and forget, get paid on the first of the month, every month kind and of thing. that's a really specific way of valuing property that we would never would have spoken about before in residential and I really want to get deep into that soon. Let's talk a little bit more about the market itself and we, we definitely will have an episode soon of going a deep dive in there. But as you referenced before, the residential market it's been booming for the last year or so. It's been quiet for five years, six years before that. With every reasonably good property, we've got 10, 15 offers most of the time at the moment where it could be sold within a couple of days if you wanted to. Prices have gone very clearly and you can compare these very easily in the residential market up between 15 and 25% in most suburbs. However, as you referenced in the commercial market, it has been just as quiet, maybe even if you can imagine this, quieter in the commercial market for quite a few years. And that's different sectors. Some sectors have been okay, some have been worse than, than I said. But it's on the recovery path. But as you referenced, nowhere near as crazy as the residential market. Yeah, look, absolutely. I think the last six months in particular is one of the best markets I've been a part of for the past five years. And again, I just think it's been driven by low interest rates. The owner-occupier market in the commercial space is quite incredible. In We're seeing a lot of tenants who are now becoming owner-occupiers. So they're weighing up 
the difference of what their monthly rental payment would be versus what the monthly repayment on a mortgage would be. Mm. And because rates are so low, it is making it much more affordable for someone who might have been a, an office tenant in Netherlands to then become a, an office purchaser in Subiaco. And that's driving the owner-occupier market in our business really well, really strongly. And then as I touched on as well, the, the investor market, because no one's getting much back from the bank at the moment, uh, everyone's hungry for a yield play. And that just sharpens those those yields up for a set and forget investment. When we walk around West Perth, Subiaco, even St. George's Terrace, we still see a lot of empty offices. See a lot of for lease signs, some for sale signs. Where we're we going in the next few years, are we eventually looking to see these things full? Or is that just, you know, is, is it demonstrating more of a shift away with people working from home these days? How has that affected the commercial market? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the three suburbs you just touched, touched on, Subiaco, West Perth and the CBD, they're all their own suburbs. I, I couldn't even group those together because that would be unfair. The office leasing market is a lot more challenging, I would say, than the sales market. As I said, a lot of tenants are now becoming purchasers. It's much more affordable. But leasing certainly has its challenges. And now the whole phenomenon of working from home has changed that space incredibly, especially in the CBD in West Perth. Working from home has its positives and negatives, but it's certainly something that's here to stay. So businesses are going to have to be flexible and adjust to how that all looks. You know, mm. I think my philosophy on working from home is that it does have a lot of benefits. And I do think it has some negatives as well. You might lose parts of your culture and morale because people are in the office and even opportunities to share information, get up from your desk, tap someone on the shoulder and ask a question. But you know, at the same time, I get it. There's people, you know, who might be commuting 10 hours a week, an hour to work and an hour home that now get to do a few days working from home and their whole lifestyle improves and perhaps their performance improves. And that would probably affect different sectors of the commercial market more than others. So a- this working from home phenomenon is not going to affect Welshpool. Correct. It's not going to affect a lot of Osborne Park or Wangara. These guys so, happy on the tools. A- a- spot on. And that's where I've seen, I specialise in commercial. So we do offices, retail sales, land development sales, that kind of thing in the city fringe. But our industrial team... Which is a different thing, right? It's a different sector. Absolutely. Different sector altogether. So so our industrial team, the guys who are sh- uh, selling and leasing the sheds and warehouses in, in those suburbs, Kewdale, Welshpool, Osborne Park, Bibber Lake, Coburn, the boom that they've had in the last six months and how often I'm hearing, you know, we just need more stock. And these guys carry a lot of stock. They're, they're great operators in my office. That is such a strong sign of how well the industrial sector is performing because of that shift. So working from home is not affecting the guys on the tools, as you said. So that's a great sign. And would you say that that has reflected the growth we've had in the residential space? So the industrial space has grown quite well, same as the residential, but maybe the commercial because it's more office-based and it's got other effects hitting it that aren't a producer-tenant that the industrial separate from the commercial actually is comparing to the residential space. Yeah, I would say the industrial is booming. Again, it's not uh, where I specialise, but from the feedback from the guys in the office, they are yeah just so busy at the moment. I think it will continue that way. And, and again, it, it's transport, it's logistics, it's on the back of the mining boom happening up north. All of that filters through and flows through into our market. So certainly there's been an uptick in office requirement in West Perth because that's still a resources hub, um, but not in the same breath, I would say, is the uptick in general requirement for purchasing and leasing industrial space in in WA at the moment. Let's talk about how these things get valued and how this goes to market because a thing like an industrial warehouse, as you mentioned, when everyone's got work and businesses are starting up and expanding and moving, 
they can swing up in value massively but mm. because the value is somewhat based on the value of the asset the land the warehouse itself it's more so based on an intrinsic yield of the rent yeah that's right so there's generally two ways you'll go about valuing a property and that's based on vacant possession or the other side is is on what you can yield it back and cap it at that rate. So vacant possession, just a rate per square metre, is if that, say for a warehouse, it's a office warehouse, it's empty, rate per square metre using comparable evidence in the area. And then the other side, using that cap rate, what can I rent it out for? And then you cap it, maybe it's 6.5%, something 7%, depending on the asset and where it's located, maybe sharper yield than that. What it does lead to though, for me, is a valuation of an asset where if this was a residential house, for example, it might be worth a million dollars just based on comparable owner-occupied values. But because the value is actually intrinsically linked to the lease being sort of like a, a term deposit substitute, and that lease in the market can be anywhere from, let's say, 5 to 8% depending on the asset, the value of that property can be substantially higher simply just because people are buying the lease buying the strength of the lease rather than that's buying right. the actual asset that it at least sits on, right? Absolutely. And that's where you, again, differentiate your investor in terms of in the investor who's looking for capital growth and looking for, for real estate that has land attached to it versus the investor who's just looking for a yield. And I suppose my advice would be if you are an investor out there, it's very important to ensure that whatever you're looking at, if it does have a lease in place, that it's not over-rented. So make sure that the tenant is paying market rent. And in the case that it is over-rented, make sure that your final yield reflects that. Mm. So if it is over-rented, you'd like to be getting a, a yield that's a little bit higher, not as sharp. Mm. Because it, it doesn't reflect what you might be able to get in the next lease Correct. with a different tenant. Correct. Let's give an example. For an office that might be getting $300,000 in rent a year, the bricks and mortar of that office might only be worth $4 million. But if you were in a market where people are happy to have that $300,000 be a 6% return on their investment, that might be worth about $5 million. Someone might pay you $5 million so that they can get a 6% return of $300,000 a year. A absolutely. and then That's a that million dollars more than what it's probably worth as a physical asset, right? And that's where the term profit rent comes in as well. So investors have to be cautious of that, that if it is somewhat over-rented, it's still an opportunity to purchase it, but you just have to account for your profit rent and then account for the fact that at the end of the term, the tenant may vacate or the tenant may stay at what's called a market rent because mm. you do have market rent reviews generally at the end of all those terms. And so, that can go down, obviously. Correct. That which means the down. value at 6% again of your asset could be a million dollars less. That's, that's right. So I think it's very important just to assess the rent that's being paid. And then secondly, it's also the strength of the covenant. So who's your tenant? Is it a $2 company or is it a multinational? Is it someone that's been there for a very long time? So there's a lot of value in the strength of someone's covenant. And the length of that lease, and right? If it's a 15-year lease. lease compared to a two-year lease, well, yes. you know there's that money is locked in. Correct. That's right. So... Length of the lease is important. If it's multi-tenanted, look at the whale, which is the weighted average lease expiry, and then look at the security that's in place as well. So do they have bank guarantees for three to six months? Are they a proven performer? Have they been paying their rent for the last 12 months or the last 24 months? So right. I think that's all very important. And general advice around when you're purchasing is 
not to be hasty, my advice would be do your research, take your time. These normally do take a lot longer than a current residential investment property, for example, right? That might go in the space of a couple of days, like a property I'd be buying in Willoughby right now. Bang, I need to buy it. I know exactly what it is. There's not that many factors I haven't checked off before. Absolutely. You would have periods of due diligence for yeah. these properties, due right? Due diligence, very common. Very common to have a period of due diligence from anywhere from 14 days all the way up to 90 days if it's a significant purchase. And that includes due diligence for the development sites we sell as well that can be more complex than just buying a you know a 600 square meter block in Willoughby. Mm. there's all sorts of other things when you're buying a commercial development site even if it's a future residential site that we do sell in terms of checking zoning r codes densities contamination and the millions uses. of millions of dollars that would have to be spent to pull that piece of land up to being a new industrial par- uh, business park Absolutely. Yep. And all and, the headworks that need to be put, the roads, all that. It's not something that you can quickly get on a calculator or a spreadsheet from what we did last week. Correct. And that's where, if you go down the other angle, which is commercial development, you have to be ready to spend money as well using consultants, environmental consultants, mm. and engineers, and, and all of the above to ensure that that project is viable, not just from a feasibility point of view, in terms of if I build it, what falls out, but there's a lot of other things to consider as well, and planning, town planning, all of those things. When we're looking to sell an investment property in the residential market, we usually want to have them vacant at the end of the day because we know that the owner-occupier market will generally pay more than an investor. Absolutely. And given the fact that investors are less than 20% of the market, we're really niching out our buyer if we've still got tenants in there and those tenants can stay for the next six months. It means you're not going to get an owner-occupier buying it. So generally, if you have an investment property and you want to sell it, you want to sell it vacant possession so that everyone can, even including investors, can buy it. From what we've spoken about just then, it sounds to me you actually probably want to have a long-term tenant in there because that's what people are actually looking to buy. Uh, you wouldn't want to have an empty warehouse unless that buyer is someone who wants to move in themselves. Yes and no, because it, it again, it all comes back to what, rent is being paid and in the last five years what i've seen and this is in the industrial and the commercial market and the retail market is that the leasing market was further depressed than the sales market so if landlords were experiencing high levels of vacancy for a long period of time and were somewhat desperate to put a tenant in there how do you get a tenant in there you have to reduce the price Mm. tenants lock in a deal for maybe three five years at a lower rent. Yeah, who'd want to buy that? It destroys your cap rate. Yeah. So what I'm actually seeing is that unless you can rent it at a healthy rate, again, vacant possession is sometimes a better way for a, from a seller's point of view to get a better price. Because you might get an owner-occupier. And when well, we're talking about right. an owner-occupier, we're not talking about someone who wants to move in with the family. It's someone right. who it's wants to run business. their business from that office space. That's right. So owner-occupier who runs a business, and as I touched on earlier, most likely renting, or, or maybe they own another property and it's time for them to expand and they assess that cost. It's all about a cost from a business point of view. It's not about assessing, you know, will we create family memories here Mm. and does this lounge room work for us and our kids and if we have another kid, you know, can we grow into it? From a business point of view, it's It's commercial. So an office is just going to look at the numbers. A retailer is going to look at the foot traffic and going to look at the demographics in the area and just see, can we make this work for our business? Is it accessible to public transport and coffee shops and for our staff to get to the office? And most importantly, does the office service and facilitate our business to do what we have to do? 
when we think about that process of buying a property in the commercial space, how is it different from buying a residential property with regards to really the nuts and bolts of sure. the conversation you'll have and the forms you sign and the finance you get? Yep. So there's a separate ONA. It's a commercial ONA, the 810C that someone fills out. It is very similar to the residential one. If you are buying a vacant possession GST is exclusive to the purchase price. So you pay GST on top of whatever that purchase price is as accordance with the REWA GST annexure. That's different, right? That's different. We don't like seeing GST in residential. That's right. It's part of the price in residential, but you do pay it on top for a commercial property. If you're registered for GST, you can get that GST back. But why you pay it is you actually pay the seller's GST liability. So if the seller is registered for GST, then the buyer pays their liability at settlement. And then they can get it back afterwards. If the seller isn't registered for GST, then... There is no GST. There is no GST. But often in commercial, they will be because companies that own the properties, even individuals can be registered for GST. If you're buying a property that has a lease in place, we sell that it's what's called a going concern. So the GST component is already built into the purchase price. So you don't pay GST on top of that provided there is a lease in place. And if I'm putting an offer in for a property, what would be the process there? As you said, it's quite acceptable to have a due diligence period. What yeah. other conditions in terms of finance timeframes, settlements timeframes sure. would there be? Generally, the terms that we ask for are quite vanilla in that it's a, a purchase price, your deposit that you'd be looking to pay. Would uh, that be 10% or 5,000 bucks or 10,000 yeah, bucks like in the resi space? It depends on the nature of the property and the purchase price itself. So if it's a $2 million sale and you're offering a $1,000 deposit, instantly that's a red flag from Mm. a selling agent point of view that this buy is probably not serious. So if you can get something along the lines of 10% or something that is relatively in tune with how big that purchase price is. So again, Mm. if it's $2 million... You probably should have at least 200 grand to bank. Yeah, yeah, but if it's not 200 grand as a deposit, as long as you're collecting something that's relatively substantial, even Mm. if it's 50 or 75 or $100,000... Yeah, it's not walk away money. Correct. And it's not something someone just reaches in their pocket and hands over a table. So I think that's important if you are making an offer that your deposit is demonstrating that you're a serious buyer. So again, a fire, it's the same with residential, isn't it? Of course, it? it's the same as residential, absolutely. And then the next terms that you'd have to consider in making an offer, your purchase price, your deposit, if it is subject to finance or it's a cash offer, if it's subject to finance... Is it pretty normal for it to be subject the, to finance, yeah, just very, like in the resi market? Very much so. And I think when I started quite a number of years ago, your standard finance would be 30 days to obtain finance. And now... I think because banks are very busy at the moment with the residential market and the volume of sales there, 45 has become the new 30. Okay. So the deals I've done in the last, you know, I was even saying the last few weeks where buyers are now saying, you know, we'll do 30 days finance, you hit 30 days and they said, our valuer hasn't even come out yet. Yeah, they're just all too busy. It's not a red flag these days, is it? No, it's not. And I think part of our job is to condition your sellers that, them needing 45 days isn't actually a reflection of the quality of your buyer or their financial situation. It's probably a reflection of the quality of the bank, it, it, <laughs> to correct, be honest. Yeah. Correct. It's a reflection of the banks, yeah. absolutely. And the t- it's just timing, again. So uh, that's part of our job is to massage that and, and condition your buyers and your sellers on both sides. So 45 days is in a lot of ways the new 30 but if you've got buyers that can make it happen in 30 it's in our interest to make it happen as soon as possible anyway and then you might have some due diligence attached i generally like to run uh, due diligence simultaneously with finance if that's the case so it doesn't hold up the deal any further so rather than doing it sequentially where you go Mm. 30 days finance and then you have 
30 days due diligence. You just don't do it like that. You might say, okay, it's 30 days to do finance and due diligence. And yeah. that's in everyone's interest to keep the deal moving along. We're using the same settlement agents. Is the process the same? Yeah, look, settlement agents, uh, some specialise in just residential, but you do have settlement agents who can do both. They're still land-based assets, most of That's them. That's right. right, yeah. There, there is certain things to account for as a settlement agent. If you just do residential and you're selling three-by-two villas and then someone you know, throws a contract on your desk for a $6 million leased investment, my advice, again, would be, to use settlement agents have experience in settling commercial properties because exactly there are right. certain things that you do have to understand foreign residents withholding taxes a few other things that they need to kind of be savvy on so another bit of advice i would probably say is that the cheapest settlement agent is not necessarily always the best settlement agent the point here is a licensed settlement agent can do this doesn't mean as you said they've got the experience to do it so yeah, probably seeing some track record and also understanding that if the business is coming along with the sale which can often happen as well when it comes to a retail store or something like that. There's a different settlement agent involved there that then your normal residential settlement agent can't actually transact on a business. Yeah, and I think that's where it just comes back to just when you, you employ someone and you pay them money, just check their track record and see that they've got the experience to perform. And yeah, it's certainly seen in the past where someone goes for a, a cheaper settlement agent and then you get to settlement and there's issues or delays and but if you ask that person again, if they had their time over and they'd spend a little bit more money, they, they certainly would. Let's talk about the leasing process when it comes to commercial and how that's different to residential. Now, when we think about the residential space, uh, the lease is pretty standard. It's a reform. We've got our lease amount, our, our terms of whether we can have a pet involved, how long it's going to go for, how often we're going to pay the rent. Sure. But it stays at that, right? When someone leases a residential property, they will pay the lease yep. and they will pay for their own utility consumption. Mm-hmm. How is it different in the commercial space? It's certainly different and these leases then impact you as an investor if you're buying a commercial asset as well in terms of the outgoings. So, uh, when, What's an outgoing? Yeah, so outgoings, are, you have what's called statutory outgoings and then variable outgoings. So outgoings are your council rates or shire rates, water rates, uh, strata levies, insurance, and then even if it gets to a point of variable, you might talk gardening, maintenance, uh, all of those items. So if it's generally capital in nature, the landlord is responsible for that. If it's uh, repairs and maintenance, that's a, that's a tenant expense in commercial real estate anyway. So in commercial leases, all those items I just listed, the tenant is responsible to pay all of those things. And that's another kicker as an investor, you, you don't pay those things. So it does make commercial investment uh, somewhat attractive as well. Well, it's a net of. amount really when you think about a lease maybe having a 7% yield. That yep. 7% isn't eroded by Correct. all those rates that you, know, you have to, as a tenant, you have to pay the land tax. Land tax as well. The Correct. land tax of the owner, which Somebody is just, yeah. it's crazy to think that you're paying someone else's bills. But that is the reality it's is that- commercial uh, practice, yeah. Yeah, when you're getting a 7% yield, that is not eroded by all the things that in a residential space, and we think, oh, the residential yield has gone from 35 to 4.5%. Well, actually, it's probably gone from- half percent to one and a half percent net because we still have to pay our property manager. We still have to pay all the rates. We still have to pay land tax. Correct. So right. if, if you invest in an apartment and then you rent that apartment out, you're still paying those strata levies, those mm. council rates, those water rates. On the other side, you buy, let's say for comparable uh, uh, strata office, right? So an apartment's a strata, strata office, residential versus commercial. Your tenant pays all of those bills. What's the risk versus reward? You're probably got more chance, especially in this market, of renting that apartment out mm. with less headaches and more applications than you would for a strata office. For and example. that's why we accept a far lower yield net 
in the, in the residential space because we probably could rent that out within two to four weeks compared yep. to the commercial, industrial, retail space where this is the where the risk is built in. Correct. These places can sit empty and we need to make this very clear to people, four years. Yeah, and I think that depends on the pricing that you're after, the property itself. A lot of landlords give advice when it comes to leasing to leasing agents around. They get advice that they need to do up the property and such a cliche line is, I'll do it up once you find me a tenant. But the the proactive landlords, the ones who actually spend the money to attract the tenant. And then they can have a higher rate as well, probably in terms of the lease. And they're the ones who often win out because Mm. they've, they've actually gone and put their hand in their pocket They've spent the money, they've then attracted a tenant because the tenant's probably seen it online or walked through and go, you know, I don't have to visualize what this is going to look like. It already presents well and you don't have to do a Hollywood fit out. But in my opinion and advice, it's all about having base build presentation. There's nothing worse than walking into an office space that you can clearly open the door and smell it hasn't opened yeah, for years. Yeah, that, that musty smell. So yeah. it's important. And when I say base build, carpets, ceiling, lighting, Air paint conditioning, work. paint work, you yeah. know, just the base bill. It's not like a lot a, of money when you think about no, no, this no, thing not, probably worth millions of dollars. That, that's right. And I'm not saying you don't need fancy glass partitioning or polished concrete floors, but it is just those base build things to present better and that gives yourself the best chance of finding a tenant. And I find if you price it correctly, you listen to your agent, if your agent's giving you, you know, real feedback as well, because often an agent can say at the start of a campaign, I think it's worth this much a square meter to rent. And then you might have, five different parties come through and they're all banging down at a lower figure and that's market feedback. It is market feedback and the, but the reality is if you go and spend $40,000 doing up your office or your retail space and that means that you can now charge 50 bucks a square meter per year more, yep. what that means is you're probably worth a few hundred thousand dollars more now as a reflection of that cap rate. Correct. So you spent 50, your asset's now worth a couple hundred thousand dollars more. It's, it just seems logical to me. A- absolutely. And it's just the, I suppose the wrestle leasing agents will have is with their landlords is just getting them to spend the money. In so. residential, you don't really know when you do a reno how much you're going to get back for it. Whereas in, in commercial and retail, you actually do know pretty yeah, pretty I, strongly what that's going to reflect at. And I think that comes back to that point as well in terms of when businesses are looking to buy or businesses are looking to lease. It, it's just a numbers game. It's it's commercial. Mm. You take that emotion out. There's there's sometimes a little bit of emotion, but generally you, you take the emotion out so mm. you can quantify how much you spend and how much you, you, you really hope to get back out of those investments into your own buildings and properties. Last thing we'll do before we finish off is just explain how that leasing number looks like, right? So when you go on realcommercial.com.au, for example, contrary to a residential lease, which might say $450 a week. Yep, absolutely. A commercial space might say $100 per square meter plus outgoings. That's right. Can we explain what that actually means? Yeah, of course. A good example. Say you go on realcommercial.com and you see a warehouse in Wangara and they're asking, as you say, $100 a square meter plus outgoings and then generally it's plus GST on top of that as well. Carbase can be on top as well. Carbase generally charged for areas where carbase are a commodity. So very rare that carbase will be charged industrially. But when you start to look at suburbs, West Perth and Subiaco. Well, here at the studio. North Perth, absolutely CBD, where carbase are a commodity, even Nedlands and Claremont, then there is generally an additional charge per bay per month for those carbase. Plus GST. Plus GST again, (laughs) yeah. So it can add up. So back to the point of $100 a square meter. Say you've got a 400 square meter office warehouse at $100. The $100 is actually a per annum figure. So 100 by 400 is $40,000 per annum. 
plus, plus your outgoings. So what might that be? Well, the outgoings do differ. Again, it's the same principle. Is I find that the closer you get to the city, that the higher they are. And then it depends if it's a strata or if it's green title, if those levies are included. Indust- Will they scale that as like a per square meter number for you as well? So you yeah, can just work it out? Correct. That's right. You can give it as a, a total figure. And generally, no one's really making money out of the outgoings. But it's a total figure or rate per square meter. So industrially, it's a lot less. Commercial can be a lot higher. For example, commercial buildings have lifts. Industrial ones generally don't. Mm. So the tenants pay the lift levies, which keeps the lifts running up and down and maintaining them. Of and, course. And that kind of thing. So so it might be 100 bucks a square meter for rent and then 100 bucks a square meter for outgoings. Yeah. Look, so that 40 turns into 80. Yeah. And then another... $5,000 worth of car bays if you're close to the if city. If you're close to the city, that's right. So mm. if you're going industrial, it's more likely it could be anywhere between 25 to $40 a square meter on your outgoings. Yeah. But as I said, it does depend on the nature of the building that will determine your outgoings. Another point I should mention as well is your management fees. If it is a commercial lease, so non-retail, those management fees are recoverable from the tenant not uh, an owner's expense. So the... Making it look really attractive to be a landlord of commercial if you've got something that's rented out. Correct, correct. If it's retail, the landlord has to pay management fees as per the Tenancy Act. But if it's non-retail, so if it's commercial, industrial, medical, that's an expense that the tenant covers for a landlord as well. Luke Rendazzo, Burgess Rawson, really appreciate you coming in, mate. It's been a really insightful and really informative chat about how those differentials sit because a lot of people, I think, they don't even venture into commercial because they don't know where to start. They don't want to ask the silly questions. And I guess what this is what this podcast is about, right? So thank you very much for coming in chatting and we'll chat about more of a market analysis uh, very soon. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!